Hello and welcome. This is Smart Prosperity, the podcast. It's a bi-weekly show that explores the intersection of the environment and the economy. Current affairs, politics, business, technology, the latest research, we've got it all and we serve it up in 25 minutes or less. Now this is the first episode and you want to know what you're getting yourself into. So in the words of Joe Biden, here's the deal. From climate emergencies, to rainforest decimation, to plastics in the ocean, to entire species disappearing, the environmental challenges facing us are at a fever pitch. People want solutions. At the same time, we'd rather not give up our economic prosperity. We still want good jobs, high standards of living, affordability. So how do we do both? Do the environment and the economy go hand in hand? Is it more head to head? This show will unpack those questions and aim to bring you quick hits with a decidedly Canadian angle that gets to the bottom of this. I'm your host, Eric Campbell. On today's show, it's official, the government commits to going above and beyond its 2030 emissions targets under the Paris Agreement. I'll speak with two experts to find out if it can actually be done. Then, as the Supreme Court reserves judgment on the Trudeau government's carbon tax, we get a briefing from three lawyers who were in the room when the hearings happened. On top of that, we'll get a 60-second summary of a new and noteworthy report, and we'll hear from Mike Moffat about what else is happening in the clean economy this week. That's today's agenda. Let's get started. Le gouvernement mettra immédiatement en place un plan qui permettra de surpasser les objectifs climatiques du Canada pour 2030. That's Governor-General Julie Payette delivering the speech from the throne on September 23rd and articulating the government's commitment to immediately release a plan for exceeding Canada's obligations under the Paris Agreement. Now, if you're asking yourself, wait, isn't Canada not yet on track to even meet those climate obligations? You're right. So is doing better than them even feasible? And if they are feasible, what needs to be in that plan? To help answer that, I'm welcoming Catherine Abreu. She is the Executive Director of Climate Action Network Canada, and in 2019 was named one of the world's 100 most influential people in climate policy. Thanks for joining, Catherine. Great to be here, Eric. Kat, what's your take on this commitment to go beyond Canada's 2030 targets? Well, it's absolutely essential. Our current commitment to reduce emissions 30% below 2005 levels by 2030 comes really nowhere close to Canada's fair share of the global effort to confront climate change. And so it's absolutely necessary that we go beyond that existing target, ratchet up the ambition of our Paris promise, and get closer to that fair share contribution. Catherine, do you think it's, I mean, is it realistic? I mean, some point out that we are still not on track to meet the 2030 targets. Uh, so what's, what's the outlook for beating them? Yeah, that's the real kicker, hey? So we can have this conversation about Canada's fair share and how necessary it is for us to put a better number on paper. But Canada has been putting numbers on paper since the early 1990s, and we have yet to meet a single climate target. So how do we make sure we don't miss yet another target when it comes to 2030? And the last last update we got from Environment and Climate Change Canada was last year, and it showed a 79 megaton gap, uh, which is about a 25% gap in meeting Canada's 2030 targets. First, what do we need to do to close that gap? 
there are kind of three core elements that uh, come to mind for me. Number one, we have to look at the suite of policy solutions that have been recommended under the Pan-Canadian framework, implement all those policy solutions at the highest level of ambition possible, and make sure we're doing it in a timely way. Many of those policies have been delayed in their implementation, most notably the clean fuel standard, the CFS has been significantly delayed. Um, and, you know, the PCS suggests that about 30 megatons of the emissions reductions toward our existing 2030 goal would come from the CFS. And so, you know, a delay on implementing that kind of policy that's supposed to come with that many emissions reductions obviously has a really big impact. But we also need to see that the policies that are being implemented um, in perhaps a more timely fashion are being implemented at the level of ambition that was articulated in the plan. An example here is on methane emissions. We saw that the federal government committed to implementing methane regulations to reduce, reduce methane emissions by 40 to 45 percent by 2025. The regulations that they've put in place We've seen some modeling that tell us we'll only get about 30 uh, percent of emissions reductions in, in methane mm. along that time period. So we're going to be missing, you know, a, a large percentage of emissions reductions there because the regulations have kind of been watered down as the government has entered into equivalency agreements with the provinces on methane. The second piece of the puzzle is it has to come along with a, a kind of economic shift in the country, right? And then number three, and this is the this is the clincher, we have to finally have the courage to have some really tricky conversations in Canada about where the future of the oil and gas industry is and what the um, what the kind of conversation about effort sharing is in Canada. The government has promised a plan, quote unquote, immediately uh, to get us beyond 2030. What do you expect to see in that plan? Is it more of the same ingredients that are needed to get us to 2030 just ramped up? Or, um, is, it, uh, or is it a different set of ingredients? This is a great question because I think it's both and. So, yes, some of the same ingredients ramped up, uh, delivering on some of the promises that were outlined in the PCF that we haven't seen yet. So that's part of it. But the other part of it is doing more. So figuring out what the missing pieces of the puzzle are. And the other part of it, of course, is around kind of industrial planning. So if we need to have that courageous conversation about the future of Canada's oil and gas sector in order to get the job done on climate change, the complementary conversation to have there is, okay, well, what are the sectors and industries that will be the future of prosperity and job creation in this country? And I would say the Canadian government has been out of the business of industrial planning for a few decades now, and it's time for us to get back into it. These kinds of sectors that wind up being the backbone of economies don't happen by accident. What does beating 2030 mean to you, Catherine? So Climate Action Network Canada, when we think about Canada's fair share, we say we need to double our domestic action. So we should be driving domestic emissions down by 60% below 2005 levels by 2030. But we also need to be dramatically scaling up the work that we're doing to help other places in the world reduce their emissions. Thanks, Catherine. That was Catherine Abreu, Executive Director of Climate Action Network Canada. To help make sense of where the 2030 targets fall in the grand scheme of things, I'm now joined by Kathy Bardswick. 
Kathy is the president of the newly minted Canadian Institute for Climate Choices, an independent think tank providing Canadian governments with climate research. She has four decades experience in the financial services industry, including as president of the Cooperators Group. Thanks for joining, Kathy. Thank you for having me. Kathy, what's your view on what it's going to take for Canada to exceed the 2030 climate target? Well, Eric, I, I'm still very much focused on what it's going to take to achieve the 2030 targets. I mean, we know from from our most recent uh, formal reporting of, of how well we're doing, there still is a gap that we need to close. Um, so I, I really am focused and, uh, and hopeful um, and I think optimistic that we'll in fact achieve our 2030 tar- targets. And that in and of itself is reason for celebration. Were you surprised to hear the government uh, commit to, to exceeding the 2030 target? I think, you know, what I took from that, quite frankly, is that uh, the message to Canadians is that this is a very serious challenge, and we all need to understand how serious it is, but we also need to recognize that that we have the wherewithal, we have the capacity as a country, not only to achieve what we set out to do, but to, in fact, you know, if if we are, are diligent enough and focused enough and committed enough, that, that we can indeed exceed now, Kathy, the speech from the throne also mentioned another target to achieve net zero emissions by 2050, and, and there was a commitment to legislate that target. How do we make sense of that target next to the 2031, and, and what does it mean in practice? Well, first, I would say that um, you know this, the, the adoption of this 2050 target is something that has been embraced increasingly around the world, given the compelling need for us as a humanity to reach that level of emission, this net zero level of emission, if we think um, that we want to be living on a planet that in fact is inhabitable. So, so taking that into consideration, I think it is essential for countries to continue to embrace this target in a very serious way. Um, so the 2030 target is a very important milestone. We need to break down uh, the progress that need, we need to make in more manageable chunks. Coming from the insurance industry and having managed a, a large organization and executed strategy, we all know this. We know that we set these visionary targets, these aspirations. We also know that we're, we're uncertain about how to get there um, and have all the T's and I's crossed. Um, so we break down those, those milestones into manageable frameworks that we can measure and we can ensure we're on the right pathway to achieve. So I would suggest the 2030 is an interim milestone. And in fact, I would also argue that we need milestones that are even um, shorter timeframes associated with how well we're doing. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the economy then. What, what are the implications of uh, these targets for the economy? I think we're already starting to indicate where we can shine. Uh, you know, you, you've seen some very encouraging announcements of late. Off the top of my head, you've just seen some announcement coming out of Alberta related to the role of hydrogen. You're, you're seeing, you know, the mining industry making some significant headways associated with positioning itself to provide the, uh, the, re- the natural resources associated with this energy transition. You've seen an announcement come out of Ford in Oakville associated with EVs um, and, and so on and so on. You're seeing some, some really exciting announcements coming out of Atlantic Canada associated with, with energy infrastructure build. Um, So we're already seeing the opportunity. We're already starting to leverage the opportunity. I think to the extent that we we stop this sense of of, um, 
I guess, morose and, and fear over the future and continue to embrace it in the ways that certain aspects, you know, of, of our communities across the country are embracing the opportunities bodes well for our ability to position ourselves competitively in this transition. Thank you, Kathy. That was Kathy Bardswick, president of the Canadian Institute for Climate Choices. Well, there you go. Two expert takes on the Government of Canada's 2030 emissions reduction targets, what needs to be in the plan to beat them, and then getting to net zero emissions by 2050. Three weeks ago, the Supreme Court of Canada held two days of hearings into the Greenhouse Gas Pollution Pricing Act. You'll know it better as the carbon tax. It was round four and the title matchup between the federal government and a handful of provinces after provincial courts in Ontario and Saskatchewan had upheld the law and an Alberta court struck it down. With Canada's highest court soon to bear final judgment on Justin Trudeau's signature climate policy, we get a play-by-play from three lawyers who are arguing the case. First, I want to welcome Charlene Tellers Langdon. She is Senior General Counsel at the Federal Department of Justice and was Lead Counsel for the Attorney General of Canada in arguing this case, both in the provincial courts and now at the Supreme Court level. She had to jump through some serious hoops to get permission to be on today's show. Charlene, thanks for doing that. Oh, you're welcome, Eric. My pleasure. Charlene, could you give us the Coles notes for the argument you made in the Supreme Court defending the federal carbon price? Um, certainly, Eric. I will do that. It's Canada's position that uh, the Greenhouse Gas Pollution Pricing Act comes within Parliament's jurisdiction to make laws for the peace, order, and good government of Canada in relation to matters that are not within the classes of subjects that the Constitution assigns to the provinces because the Act addresses a matter of national concern. This is known as Parliament's POG power. Now, that language comes directly out of the Constitution And the National Concern Branch of Parliament's POG power allows the federal government to address both new matters that did not exist at Confederation. Um, Aeronautics is a good example. And it also allows Parliament to address matters that, although originally of a local nature in a province, have since become matters of national concern. From a lay perspective, there's no doubt that reducing greenhouse gas emissions and addressing climate change are matters of national and indeed global concern. However, from a constitutional law perspective, it's not that simple. Under Canadian constitutional law jurisprudence, for something to qualify as a matter of national concern, it must be defined in a way that clearly distinguishes it from matters over which provinces have jurisdiction. One way to assess this is to consider what the effect would be on extra-provincial interests if a province fails to effectively control or regulate the intra-provincial aspects of the matter. This is called the provincial inability test. In addition to being distinct, recognizing a new matter of national concern must have a scale of impact on provincial jurisdiction that is reconcilable with the fundamental distribution of powers under the Canadian Constitution. It is Canada's position that the Greenhouse Gas Pollution Pricing Act addresses a matter that meets all of these tests. That was Charlene Tellers Langdon. She's been responsible for the past two and a half years for arguing the federal government's carbon pricing case. She took time out from a much-deserved holiday to be on today's program. Now to help add some colour to those Supreme Court hearings, I'm welcoming Stuart Elgie. Stuart is a celebrated environmental lawyer. He was the founder of EcoJustice, Canada's now largest environmental law charity. 
And he was arguing at the Supreme Court in favor of the federal carbon price as counsel for the Ecofiscal Commission. Thanks for joining the program, Stuart. You're very welcome. Stuart, for the non-lawyer types out there, could you sum up what this case is about from a legal perspective? This case was about whether or not the federal government has the constitutional authority to put a price on carbon. Interestingly, it was not about whether or not carbon pricing is an effective policy. In fact, the three challenging provinces agreed in the hearing that carbon pricing works. It's a low-cost way to reduce emissions and drive innovation. They simply argued the federal government can't do it. The, the province's main argument is that carbon pricing is not a matter of national concern. That's the test under the Constitution. Um, they argued, in effect, that climate change is more of a local and provincial issue uh, about regulating local businesses. The federal government argued that it is a matter of national and international concern, that climate change and greenhouse gas emissions by definition have global impact, and it requires the coordinated action by nations of the world to tackle the problem. Stuart, you had been involved as counsel uh, in two of the provincial uh, cases in Ontario and Saskatchewan last year. Was this round at the Supreme Court level, was it different than, than those two? And, and in what ways did, did the arguments differ uh, or did the, the, did the mood and dynamics differ? It's always different in the Supreme Court of Canada because you know it's the last word on the issue. You don't have another chance if you lose. Um, it's different because there's nine judges. Uh, and so each of them sees it their own way. And you've got to figure out how to speak to all of them or at least most of them. In a provincial court of appeal, you're speaking to either three or five judges. And Stuart, what was your read of the nine Supreme Court justices uh, in the room? The judges asked great questions. I think they understood both sides' positions really well, um, and they were asking good questions of both sides. I think the challenge for the court is how do they put boundaries on the federal power over climate change so that they leave room for provinces to deal with the provincial aspect of the problem, to tailor their solutions to the different types of economies that different provinces have, but still ensure that Canada as a whole is taking effective action on what is essentially an international problem. Thanks, Stuart. Also serving as counsel to an intervener at the Supreme Court hearings is Natalie Chalifour. Natalie is a professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Ottawa, and she was representing the National Association of Women and the Law and Friends of the Earth. Natalie, thanks for joining the program. You're welcome. So maybe we can start with, why did National Association of Women and the Law and Friends of the Earth decide to intervene in the case? So my clients decided to intervene at the Supreme Court level because there had not been at any of the Court of Appeal levels any kind of voice for women or even for substantive equality. And so that perspective we felt was really important uh, to bring before the court, especially at the Supreme Court level, because we felt that it was important that the Constitution, and specifically the division of powers issues, be interpreted against the backdrop of the Charter's Equality Guarantee. Natalie, what's your sense of what comes next? Well, it's 
always impossible to predict uh, with any certainty what the Supreme Court will decide. But the indications, certainly from the questions that were asked from the bench and the way in which the hearing unfolded over those two days, uh, I believe that there is a good chance this law will be upheld as being constitutional. I expect there will be a decision that is split. Um, again, from the questions, you could see there is particular one justice in particular was throwing out questions that suggest he may not be uh, in favor of holding the legislation. Of course, you can't predict what's going to happen once they've read through all the arguments again and discussed among themselves, but there's a good chance it will be a split decision. Um, and so even when it's split, as long as the majority upholds the legislation, that's the final say at the Supreme Court level, and it will create some certainty moving forward. Well, there you have it. There's some insider views on the Supreme Court and the federal carbon price, which is unfolding as we speak. Want to follow up on something you just heard? Visit our podcast website at podcast.smartprosperity.ca for additional materials and links. Now it's time for something we'll do every show. It's called the 60 Second Report. It's where we invite the author of a recent and noteworthy report to sum it all up in 60 seconds or less. This week, we're profiling the recent report from the Task Force for a Resilient Recovery. I'm turning it over to the chair of the Task Force, Richard Florizone. In September, the Task Force for a Resilient Recovery released its report on how Canada can invest in a post-COVID recovery that is positive for both the economy and the environment. Drawing on the best ideas from across Canada and around the world, our report recommends $55 billion in government investment in five bold moves including building retrofits, zero emission vehicles, clean energy, and nature. The report makes 22 recommendations within those five moves with specific policy instruments and potential implementation partners across Canada. Our recommendations align well with what we are seeing in recovery packages around the world, including the EU's commitment of over a trillion dollars over 10 years. Let's be clear. We are still in the middle of a health crisis, and government's first priority must be on fighting the virus and supporting those directly affected. But it's also time to plan for the recovery, with investments that are good for both the economy and the environment. Now, the intersection of the environment and the economy is a big intersection, and there's inevitably a whole lot happening every week that we just can't cover in depth. So I've invited my colleague, Mike Moffitt. He's the Senior Director of Policy at Smart Prosperity Institute to share the five other things that are on his radar this week. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? Not too bad. How are you, Eric? I'm good. Thank you for uh, for being here. And Mike, what are the other five things that you're tracking in the clean economy this week? Well, number one, Ford Motor Company announces a multi-billion dollar investment into electric vehicle manufacturing in Ontario. The plan would see five models of EVs assembled in Ford's Oakville plant, with the first models rolling off the line in 2025. Battery production would also occur at the plant, creating spinoff jobs at Tier 1 and Tier 2 parts manufacturers. Both the federal and provincial governments are providing substantial incentives to secure this investment. Number two, Kia announced that they will be the next major car brand entering the EV market with the release of their first model, codenamed CV, to be released in 2021. The Korean automotive giant is pledging to have 11 EV models by the end of 2025. Number three, in a speech to the Global Risk Institute, Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem expressed a need for better understanding of the implications of climate change to the financial system. 
The bank is working with their global counterparts to study how companies should weigh and disclose climate risks that affect them. Macklem suggested that failing to understand these risks could cause significant losses for financial institutions and could even threaten the stability of our financial system. Number four, China joins the list of countries making net zero greenhouse gas commitments with the country pledging to the United Nations that they will achieve this target by 2060. And number five, the federal government announced it will move to ban six single-use plastics by 2021. Typically, plastic pollution falls under provincial regulation, though the federal government is arguing that they are justified in doing so as plastic waste is harmful to wildlife, which is under federal jurisdiction. I'm Mike Moffat, and those are the five things I'm watching this week. That's it for today's show. Did you like it? Please tell your colleagues, your family, your friends. All our shows are available on the Smart Prosperity website, on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you stream your podcasts. Have you got some feedback? I'd love to hear from you. You can do that through the website at podcast.smartprosperity.ca or you can email me or at me on Twitter at paperbageric. Finally, thank you to the University of Ottawa for giving us access to State of the Art Podcast Studio. The next episode is out on October 28th. Till then.